You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here with Marie. And my first guest this morning is Sheila Jeffries, Professor Emeritus from Melbourne University, scholar, activist, author of titles such as Gender Hurts, The Lesbian Revolution, Penile Imperialism, and her autobiography, Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life. Sheila, good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning, Marie. It is a great pleasure to have you. You actually, from feedback since we've been doing the show for five months, you are the one person that crops up again and again and again whenever we touch issues around trans activism. And they all say to me, you must talk to Sheila Jeffries. You must talk to Sheila Jeffries. So we've been working on this a wee while to get you here. I'm so delighted to have you here. What are some of the things that you are now seeing? What are the changes from transgenderism, say, of the 20th century to the transgenderism of today? Mm, Well, that is a big question. I mean, there wasn't really transgenderism in the 20th century. I mean, it was only really in the 1990s, mid-1990s, that anybody started using that term all the sort of concepts that we now associate with it. I'm a historian, and I'm particularly, I'm a historian of sexuality as well as a political scientist, but originally I was a historian. So I'm interested, very interested, of course, in where this thing called transgenderism came from. And in the 20th century, the sexologists, the scientists of sex, who sort of gave names to everything, all the different sexual perversions, uh, gave the name of transvestism to the men's sexual perversion. Women don't have sexual perversions. The sexologists are quite clear about that. It is men. It's a problem of male sexuality. Um, So transvestism was uh, described the sexual perversion in which men were sexually excited by dressing up in women's clothes, engaging in women's practices, and so on. It, it has a long history, and sexologists were writing about it throughout the 20th century. They never ever thought for one moment that these men became women, and indeed these men themselves never said they were women. They understood themselves to be transvestites, and there were transvestites magazines and clubs and weekends away and all that sort of thing. So it was a sexual perversion which meant that these men got sexually excited by things like putting on women's underwear. Uh, these days, um, it's it's much more complex and developed. There's a huge pornography of transvestism, of course. Uh, it's called transgenderism now. But transvestism is a name I prefer uh, because I think it explains the sexual uh, nature of what was going on. So these days, uh, transvestites are likely to be sexually interested in things like um, possibly knitting, maybe even pink knitting. That can get them sexually excited or wearing false women's body suits, as well as wearing uh, what they see as women's clothes and any number of uh, practices that are sexually exciting because they are about masochism, because women have an uh, inferior status when men imitate these things, they get sexually excited. So, for instance, in the pornography, you will find that the men uh, might have the orgasm moment might be when uh, lipstick is forced onto them because they've been forced into the subordinate status of being a woman. And that's very exciting. So everything that is about that uh, subordinate status is sexually exciting to them. Now, what happened in the 1990s is things changed. In my book, um, Penile Imperialism from last year, I explained that after the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, a a large number, a large and increasing number of men's sexual perversions, sexual interests, which include various forms of fetish and kink and sadomasochism and paedophilia and so on, uh, developed the practitioners of those things develop campaigns to normalize them, to change the law, to get these things made acceptable and reasonable so they could do them in public and so on and so on. And transvestism was one of those things. Uh, the, The campaigns to normalize the sexual perversions 
were all based on the gay rights campaign, um, and they included you know various set uh, things such as the, the changing the names, changing the language, changing the law, and so on. And it was a similar for all of these things. So in the 1990s, that very much was undertaken by the male practitioners of transvestism. Now, the problem for them was it was obviously, the sexologists all said it was a sexual perversion, and they wanted to normalize their practice, and they understood that if people knew that it was about sex, that might be difficult to do. People might think it was odd that, for instance, you know, men might go into the women's toilets to get used tampons out of the bin and put them up their bottom, which is one of the things that men interested in this practice will do. I know the practices are really rather extraordinary when you start looking at what they actually are. Now, that sort of thing doesn't go down very well with the public. So in the 1990s, some men in America, one of whom was a lawyer, decided that they would, in order to normalize their practice and gain the right to just pretend to be women anywhere and go into any women's spaces and so on, they, they would set up a bill of rights. So they set up a bill of rights, which and they changed the language at this point. They said that actually there was nothing to do with sex. It was about gender identity. They were men who just happened to have, by some strange accident of fate, a gender identity which would normally belong to women, which meant things like wanting to wear high-heeled shoes and skirts and shave their legs and, and so on. It never sort of extended to wanting to do the housework because that's not actually how it was. Uh, but these men decided that they had uh, gender identity. It was innate something that couldn't be changed. Everybody needed to accept it. They were just like gay men in that. This is what they said. And so they set up this um, bill of rights, which said they must have the right to gender expression, the right to everybody to accept their gender identity. And so on. Gradually, over the next couple of decades, men internationally um, took up this demand. The transvestites took up the demand. They were heterosexual men not gay men, took up the demand, have their gender identities recognized in law and everywhere, which effectively meant being recognized as women. They were hugely successful in this, as we know. They were hugely successful because they attached themselves to gay rights. They said, we are just like gay men, right? We are just a special kind of person. So um, in 2007, in, uh, for instance, uh, they set up an international document called the Yogyakarta Principles, which was about uh, lesbian and gay rights and transgender rights. Now, in fact, of course, transgender rights are pretty much the opposite of gay rights. They are about heterosexual men who pretend to be lesbians because they carry on being interested in women and so on. And very quickly, in fact, these, these men started to take over uh, lesbian and gay organizations and force their priorities onto these lesbian and gay organizations. There was a bit of, uh, well, there was quite a bit of fight back in the beginning, you know, in the first sort of eight, 10 years of the 20th century, when I was looking at these things happening online, a lot of, of organizations in the States uh, and Stonewall in, in Britain thought this. They did not think that there was any similarity of interests between lesbians and gays and these heterosexual men with women's knicker fetishes. So they didn't think they should be joined together. And they fought that. Um, but gradually they succumbed and these organizations were taken over by these men. I think uh, because uh, gay men got many most of the things that they wanted, like gay marriage and so on. And some of these organizations, they needed another funding base. And so taking up this issue of the heterosexual men's fetishes seemed to be a good way to go. These organizations were already quite powerful. They were influential with governments. They had created a lot of um, social capital, social acceptance, quite reasonably. They had done a very good job. So these uh, male fetishists were, fetishists were able to slip into those organizations, often in leadership roles, and give the impression that all of their demands should be met because they were really a kind of gay men. So in the 1990s, the word transgender, which was the word they took on, uh, was not really understood. People were not using that term. Um, but now, of course, it is well understood. Uh, so that's the moment at which a change happened. Absolutely crucial to say this is nothing to do with sex. 
or we will not get accepted. And in fact, one of the strategies they used to sort of prove that it was nothing to do with sex is that they campaigned for the transgendering of children. They campaigned to get it accepted that children as young as two years old, because it was something innate, could have this gender identity of being the opposite sex, and that therefore, um, by the time they were nine, 10 years old, they should be on Lupron, this drug to delay puberty, which uh, damages the bones and damages the brain and so on and so on and so on. And then, you know, in their mid-teens, they could go on to opposite sex drugs, which would destroy their fertility and so on, have their breasts taken on. This was very, very, very vicious, of course, because it's a terrible, terrible harm to children, mostly gay children, mostly young gay boys and young lesbians. So in that way in particular as well, this campaign was very hostile to the interests of lesbians and gays, very, very, very hostile. So that was one of the techniques that they used to try and say that it's not about sex, it's not about sex. Indeed, indeed of course, for the, some, the few adult women who seek to transgender, it's not about sexual excitement of, of men's knickers or whatever, it's because they're unhappy lesbians and have been persuaded that uh, the, that pretending to be men will be profitable for them and, and a useful way to go. So it's the, the campaigns are uh, a push forward, either heterosexual male cross-dressers, transvestites, but various other contingencies are picked up along the way. And it's very important to point out that middle-aged heterosexual women don't do it. I mean, women are not transvestites. They're not sexually excited by men's knickers or men's boots or, or men's trouser belts or, or, or whatever it is. So uh, you do not get you know, middle-aged women or women in their 40s or 50s um, dressing up in their husband's clothing and coming down to him on the evening. I'm describing what men do to women and coming down to him in the evening and saying, I am now a woman in this ball gown. You are a lesbian. I am a lesbian. I expect to have lesbian sex with you. This is after like 20, 30 years of marriage, five children, so on, so on. Now, Women don't do it. Right now, if there was such a thing as gender dysphoria and a general, gen, uh, a real problem of gender identity, having to skip about and go into the wrong bodies and all this sort of stuff, then you would find large numbers of ordinary heterosexual middle-aged women doing this in the same way that men do. And they absolutely 1000% do not. So that alerts us from the very beginning to the fact that we have a made up problem a made-up category here. Mm. Is there been an element where this movement has sort of swung itself or attached itself to the coattails of the success of the feminist movement from the sexual revolution onwards in order to sort of sneak through the back door, excuse the pun, um, as they're trying to sort of get their fetish recognised? Or have they just been opportunist and dogmatic and have tried to continue to have their relevance sought and do the male uh, it's really just an extension of ongoing male misogyny and power over women. I don't think that they have anything whatsoever to, to do with feminism. They have never mentioned it. They never show any interest whatsoever. Back in the late 1970s, when I was living in London, there were one or two men who tried to go to the women's discos. They wanted to go there and pretend to be lesbians and sexually harass lesbians, which they still do now. It's a very serious problem of these men sexually harassing lesbians and not allowing lesbians to have dating sites or clubs or anything without these men being able to be there and harass them. So there were just a couple of men in the late 1970s who tried to do that. They had no, no interest in actual feminism. I mean, they were not setting up, you know, transvestite men's groups to fight for women's liberation or, or anything of that mm. kind. They didn't actually say there were women then, so they, that wouldn't have made mm. sense. So no, they've never ever had anything whatsoever to do with women, except that they want to go to places where women are for their sexual excitements. That's that's what women mm. are to them, and that's why women are interesting. So currently today, um, and it's very interesting what you say, that you don't see middle-aged women dressing up and doing this. So currently within the sphere of young people that we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of young women feeling that they want to transition and change their gender to either gender non-binary or male. Is that then an effect of a social contagion as opposed to a sexual fetish? 
certainly for the women, the, 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 for the, young the children girls. Who, and young women who are seeking to transgender, the vast majority now are girls, three quarters are girls. It was absolutely the opposite 20 years ago. Um, so, and the numbers are huge now of girls. It was almost none 20 years ago. So in that sense, certainly it is a social contagion. But in terms of why is it happening, also the vast majority are same-sex attracted. So it's about young women. It's a, it's a hard time for lesbians right now. You know, I'm a lesbian mm -hmm. feminist who fought in the 70s and 80s to create lesbian community and culture and make it possible for lesbians to have groups everywhere, all kinds of things going. All of that's been smashed away. It's so hard now for young women to be lesbians, um, partly because of the pornography that's developed and, and so on. So uh, let Young women don't even want to call themselves lesbians now. They prefer to say they're non-binary or queer or some other word, which doesn't say that they refuse to have anything to do with men because that's a very dangerous thing to say. Um, so the, the vast majority are uh, young women who are sexually attracted to other young women. Uh, but there's other reasons why many, many young girls are going for this at the moment. It's going to stop. I mean, internationally, there's a big pushback and this is going to end. But the, a reason why these young girls are doing it is because of the influence of pornography on the world in which they are growing up, which is horrifying. Um, when you read about the effects of pornography on boys, the sort of things that boys are demanding, and being a young woman is extraordinarily difficult today. Um, the, the things that heterosexual women were expected to do 20 years ago, it's, it's different now because there's been a normalization of sadomasochism, strangulation, for instance. Many countries are having to introduce special legislation on strangulation because these men all want to do it. The pornography teaches them to do it. And then sometimes the women die and they go into court and they say, she made me do it because she really wanted me to do it. Anal sex has been completely normalized. That simply wasn't the go 20 years ago. So the world in which women, young women live, which is extremely hateful of them, particularly sexually hateful of them, is one that some of them do not wish to be in as young women. That's completely understandable. But the way to deal with all of that is obviously not to cut off their body parts and sterilize them and all this terrible harm, uh, which is eventually going to be a massive, massive, massive medical scandal. And we're building up to that. We are building up to that. Yeah, well, I was going to bring that up. I mean, you've already had um, clinics, the Tavistock Clinic, being closed. So it's at that sort of initial forefront. What has been driving that? Has it been the parents or has it been detransitioners or has it been the work of people like yourself who are saying, this is simply wrong, it must stop. What is finally piercing the veil of the ideology? When I wrote Gender Hurts back in uh, 2014, I had a chapter on, on the children. And in fact, I had a couple of pieces in the newspapers from one in 2004 in Australia saying that it was completely unacceptable to be doing this terrible medical harm to these children. Um, but nobody was really taking that very seriously at the time. Uh, but when I wrote Gender Hurts, I, I was of the opinion that the two categories of person, and I wrote chapters on both of these in the book, that could start to sway this around was, first of all, the children, because people care about children. And I did think there would be detransitioning, as there now is. And I had a couple of detransitioners in that book. And I thought also that it would be the wives and female partners. Unfortunately, it has not been. The wives and female partners suffer terribly. And I explained in my book that that needs to be understood as psychological violence. It's horrendous when these men suddenly tell their wives and partners, sorry, I'm a woman now. I'm going to wear your clothes. You need to come shopping with me. You are a lesbian. The psychological harm is horrendous. Uh, but it is still the case that women are being told you need to support him. He's an adventurer. He's a wonderful person. He's brave. He, you know, his journey is important. So I thought that the wives would be listened to. That is not the case. Hardly anybody takes that seriously at all. And the women's uh, organizations on violence are absolutely not understanding that this behavior of men is a form of psychological violence and needs to be seen as such. So I wasn't right about the wives and partners because actually nobody cares about adult women. Nobody cares. They do care about children. 
So who actually brought these issues in in the end in, 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 out into the spotlight uh, in this country? Stephanie Arai Davies, who is not a medical, uh, she's somebody interested in children, and she set up an organization, Transgender Trend, to talk about this issue and do lots and lots and lots of writing of this issue, lots of pressuring. There were some staff, brave staff at the uh, Gender Identity Clinic for Children who came out and started speaking. There were detransitioners. There were some lawyers who are prepared to support the detransitioners. So it's a lot of people. And now we have organizations of therapists, of psychiatrists starting to develop in, in different countries. And this is happening in Australia as well. So it's, now, it's huge now and it's unstoppable and that will stop. And that will be a problem for the adult male transvestites because they will no longer have this argument that children do it too, it's nothing to do with sex, and so on and so on, because the children will not be doing it too in 10 years' time. I think we can pretty much guarantee that that is the case. In a way, a form of child abuse, isn't it? I mean, I had a child abuse advocate on here a couple of weeks ago, and the stats in New Zealand are horrendous. I mean, one in three girls, one in four boys are sexually abused before the age of 16 in this country. And you throw the layer of transgenderism on that. And the statistics with what we're doing to children is really quite horrifying. And yet... In this country, you can still have, I've also spoken to another parent, where teachers and schools are actively enabling these young girls to go down a potentially medically irreversibly damaging process, and the parents aren't even involved. It is. They don't even tell the parents. It's a way of state capturing the children and forcing terrible harms upon them. It's completely, completely shocking. I don't know whether you're aware, but there's a a problem at the moment with Costa Coffee. And Costa Coffee is doing an advertising campaign in which it features what looks like a young girl who has had her breasts removed and you can see the scars. I mean, how extraordinary that this has become the ideology of whole societies and of capitalism at this point, to the extent that they are promoting the mutilation of girl children in coffee chains. I mean, what an extraordinary situation that we have reached. I've always think with this, it's follow the money. Absolutely. Where is Absolutely. the money coming from, from for all of this? It is high, uh, strongly connected into capitalism, of course, because there are lots and lots and lots of monetizing possibilities connected with transgenderism, not just the pharmaceutical companies, although it is huge for the pharmaceutical companies, but also, of course, many other organizations are trying to get into, into the act, like Costa Coffee, like various um, beer companies and so on. But they're finding that actually, as we all know, the vast majority of the ordinary public does not buy it. Once they know what it's about, and for a long time they did not know what it was about, but now the surveys that are being done in Scotland and the UK and other countries show that the vast majority of people are not approving of uh, transgender ideology, particularly the transgendering of children, and so they're, they're happy to join in boycotting campaigns of all the companies that are adopting this. But, I mean, the adoption by all these companies is extraordinary. It's just that I think they've made a mistake, and they are beginning to learn that they have made a mistake. They thought it was the next best thing after sort of gay washing everything that they would actually do all this transgender stuff. So you can't walk into your local supermarket without a pride flag that's got the pink and the the baby pink and the baby blue for transgenderism added to it. You have to walk over it to get your groceries. I mean, it's an extraordinary situation where so many capitalist enterprises have actually now taken up the ideology and are forcing it on people who do not want it. I mean, as I say, the majority of people are not accepting it. I'm talking to Sheila Jeffries. At the forefront of this, I've certainly noticed it is gays and lesbians that are not down with it. And you have been most vocal about pushing back against it. What about organisations such as Stonewall? I mean, they have bought into this hook, line and sinker. What are the schisms that are going on behind the scenes in those organisations that have done so much good work, as you said, to achieve things such as gay marriage, who are now, it almost seems like there's an unravelling going on. What are some of the things happening in that space? 
there is an unraveling going on. What happened with Stonewall, of course, is that a couple of years ago, Stonewall took up the transgender issue in 2014. Before that, it was determined not to because some gay organizations were sensible enough to say, if we touch this issue, it will hugely damage us. This will be damaging, as, and it is now being very damaging because it's being used against lesbians and gay men in America and in other places by right-wing organizations and so on. So in 2014, Stonewall took up transgenderism and it then became the main their main focus. So they introduced schemes that firms could um, apply to so that they would get sort of ticks and, and be said to be, you know, champions, Stonewall champions, and universities did it, health service agencies did it, government departments did it. I mean, completely extraordinary. But Stonewall had built a wonderful reputation as a champions for lesbians and gay men, and therefore all these different organisations assumed that they were a good thing and it would be good to be attached to them. So they had hundreds and hundreds of organisations paying them huge amounts of money. The government was paying them huge amounts of money. And they went round and trained health service workers, university lecturers, and so on, on the uh, absurdity of the transgender ideology. A couple of years ago, two women who had been involved in Stonewall in the beginning, Bev and Kate, who've been doing some wonderful TV interviews of late, um, they said that they needed to set up a new organization to fight this because it was doing such harm to lesbians and gay men, not just through the transgendering of children, but in, in many, many other ways. So they set up an organization called LGB Alliance in the UK, which now has branches in other countries. It may have a branch in New Zealand as well. Um, and they are fighting the ideology. I mean, they've just fought an extraordinary legal battle in Britain because uh, the organization Mermaids in League with Stonewall, Mermaids is an organization which promotes the transgendering of children. Uh, it started off as a parents group to support parents, and then it became a promotion organization. Mermaids and Stonewall objected to the fact that the LGB Alliance had put in for... Um, uh, charity status. Yeah? They said no, they shouldn't be a charity. They, you know, they were full of hate speech and all of this other stuff that they say. And they lost uh, a couple of weeks ago. They lost that case, and that's quite damaging. I think that very damaging for mermaids, damaging uh, for Stonewall, and very good for the LGB Alliance. And, and Bev and Kate have been doing these triumphal um, and wonderfully clear interviews about all of this. So that's one. That's happening in many lesbian and gay organisations, I think, that people who were at one time involved are looking at it and thinking, my God, what's happening? Or leaving those organisations and becoming concerned. So we're getting more and more activity on that front as lesbians and gay men fall out of step, mostly lesbians. It was lesbian feminists who started this whole campaign to assert women's rights against transvestites. Definitely, definitely lesbian feminists from the very beginning. So let's talk about feminism, because feminism has gone through many evolutions over the decades. One of the observations I have is that when any of these ideological matters come up, whether it be gender ideology, race-based ideology, or political ideologies, it's often my most vociferous critics are other women, as women on both sides of this battleground. And what are you seeing in terms of modern feminism and the trans-exclusionary radical feminists versus this current bunch, which I don't even know what to call them. I call them something quite nasty, actually. But how do women, how do we reclaim ourselves from this, from this ideology? I, I don't think for a moment that on this issue, our most serious opponents are women. They're definitely men. They are transvestites and those who support transvestites. And at this point, it's extremely clear that the transvestite campaigners have joined up with all sorts of other men's rights groups. Um, such as incels, there's incels now in many countries, which means involuntary celibates, it's men who blame women for not wanting to have sex with them, and sometimes go out with guns and knives and kill quite large numbers of people. They've killed quite a few hundred people, and they're now seen as a terrorist organization in the US. So these groups of men are very much coming together. You see them coming together online in the sort of 
terrible harassment and abuse of women, the death threats and threats of terrible violence. We're getting more and more violence at organizations like uh, Kelly. Stand up for women. Um, Kelly, yeah, uh, here in Auckland. Mm. Yes, in, in Auckland and in other countries that she's been to speak, the men are getting more violent in a way which is extraordinary and extraordinary to many of us because, you know, I was a feminist in the 1970s and men did not attack women. They not only didn't attack women, they had no interest. They never turned up at marches. They didn't try to get into meetings. They had no interest whatsoever, zilch, right? Now, in this very, very different time, after there's been a massive um, pornography industry creating hatred of women and psyching men up in an extraordinary way over the last couple of decades, now we're in this situation where men are prepared to be actually violent and actually attack women. I mean, it's an extraordinary stage that we've reached. And these violent and hateful men are making it extremely difficult, for instance, for women to be. Um, In the public world, in the political world, women MPs are receiving terrible, terrible abuse, particularly if they stand up on this issue, but they are receiving it anyway. And the United Nations Commissioner on Violence Against Women, Reem Al-Saleem, whose campaigns for women's sex-based spaces and says women need to have their own spaces, she has received the most terrible abuse. Men don't receive abuse at all in this way. Very, very, very little. So we're in this new space where men generally, not just transvestite activists, are joining together to make more on women's speech, on women in public life. So I don't see other women as our own worst enemies or whatever on this issue. I'm very, very clear of what the problem is. What is happening now, which is really interesting, and I don't think that the transvestites activists understood that this would happen, is that a huge new wave of feminism is developing, which is absolutely marvellous. And it's taking place place apace all of the time. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm getting emails through my website from young women at university who are reading my books and getting in touch with me. Got huge numbers of, of middle-aged women, of course, who are concerned about their children. Concerned about their girl children in particular, and very, very distressed. And we've got lots and lots and lots of feminists who have been involved in the 70s and 80s coming back in and getting involved. So we've got in all countries an extraordinary movement now. Of course, I'm I'm one of the directors of Women's De- uh, Declaration International. We set up a declaration of of women's sex based rights saying that women's rights were being removed by transvestite activists and by the notion of gender. And we tried to reassert all of the rights that exist in CEDAW, the Women's UN Convention from 1979, women's right to sports, women's right to speech, women's right to engage in politics. We we are reasserting all of those. We have groups all over the world. We have activists involved all over the world. I'm meeting women all over the world. It's a most extraordinary uprising that is happening now. So far from women being particularly a problem for me at this point, Mm. we're in a new movement I never thought would happen. I thought Mm. it was all over Red Rover. The first decade or so of the 20th century, I thought that was it. There was nothing. We'd lost all of our spaces, all of our bookstop chores, all of our community hubs. We'd lost everything. And feminism was being pushed out of universities by all this postmodernism and all kinds of rubbish. Um, So I thought it was the finish. Are you feeling history repeat itself? Well, we are getting feminism back. There's there's some big differences between the feminism we're getting now and previously, not in the ideas really, but obviously in the ways that we can organise because we're mostly organising online. Zoom meetings are happening all over the world. Women are getting in touch and so on. Um, So there's, But there are groups being founded on the ground, lots and lots of them in the UK, not exactly consciousness and crazy groups as they were before. And it's extraordinary that it is happening because now it's so dangerous. You know, it wasn't mm. dangerous in the 70s and 80s. Anybody could set up any groups, do anything. Now, any women involved in any of these activities are likely to be attacked. They're likely to be disciplined in their workplaces, possibly sacked. I mean, it's actually dangerous to have feminist ideas now and we are still getting 
a big movement developing again. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which it's it's not the same, and we can talk about that some other time mm. because I'm very interested in the ways that it's different. There's certainly a big movement. I'm seeing a weaponized kindness, I call it. They take the very best of womanhood in terms of our natures and they've turned that against us. And I see that a lot in this country in the education sector. So a lot of this ideology now is driven through the education sector and through the schools. And and that, as a parent of teen, I've got teenage boys and I see their friends and I've spoken to other parents Some schools are not down with it, which is great. My boys are in a Catholic school, so the Catholics are certainly not down with us, single-sex Catholic school. However, there are it only takes one activist teacher within a school environment to turn the entire thing on its head. And they've got very powerful support. They have support in this country. There's an organisation called Inside Out and another one called Rainbow Youth. They're heavily funded, uh, government funding and social funding, which essentially all, all roads lead back to the government. And they have a power within these schools to set guidelines because teachers are so pressured to get information out there that they take the the easiest path that they can. They have the information provided to them. And they literally told the lie that by teaching this and affirming this, you are affirming kindness to this child. Well, what I think is happening is that this vicious movement to suppress women's rights and to medicalize and mutilate children, it's um, it what it's done is it's taken the language of social justice movements. In general, it's taken the language that's been developed over the last few decades by social justice movements and the concept, and yes, they are being weaponized against us. So, for instance, the concept of diversity, which in theory should mean anti-racism and anti-sexism and so on, that's been absolutely turned on its head. And feminists and women are told, you need to be diverse. You've got to have men in your toilets and changing rooms naked to your 12, next to your 12-year-old daughter. That is diversity. This is an extraordinary thing that has happened. Um, and what I find, one of the things that I find most extraordinary is the hypocrisy in this, because, for instance, what is being said about transgenderism and drag is never being connected with this other very significant issue of racism and the blackface. I mean, in this country, for instance, um, there was a wonderful piece on the television about it just last week with the whole history of came from the US. It, um, this the, the black and white minstrels was invented for white men to imitate black men and, and do all kinds of terrible mockery of them. And it was very clear that it was about trying to prevent the abolition of slavery in America, which came later, of course, than in Britain and other places. And it was to trying to prove that slaves were of inferior status and they really were stupid, um, happy-go-lucky simpletons and so on and so on, and so on. That's what it was about. And the first man who came over to Britain um, from America, bringing the ideology, he actually wrote all of that down. That's what it was about. So it was viciously racist from its beginning. And it took until 1978 and a campaign in Britain by the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination to get rid of the black and white minstrel show from BBC TV. It was a big campaign. When they started the campaign, nobody understood what it was about. They were no problem at all. Black and white minstrel is absolutely marvellous. If you see it, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. Well, of course, many feminists, including myself, point out that drag is exactly the same as minstrelism. It's the mocking of the underclass by the superior class, the mocking of the voice, the clothing, absolutely shocking. But of course, drag is different because it's totally sexualized. I mean, if you see any of the pictures of what's going on in a lot of the drag shows, all of the stuff around bottoms and anuses, and I mean, it's just absolutely, extremely, extremely sexualized. It's sex industry, really. The names are you know, like one woman, one man on Hampstead Heath is called the whore of hamster teeth and so on. But I mean, this is this is what these, these names are about. But now they are going into schools, being paid to go into schools and public libraries to train children in diversity. It's called diversity. 
but lesbians are never invited in. People with disabilities are not invited in. And the, dra the, the drag queens are not wanting to go into hospitals and so on. They are going for children, which is uh, potentially a problem in itself because it's a, it's a form of indoctrination. So I'm very interested in these social justice movements and how they don't join up the way that the language is being perverted and used, the way that racism is being kept separate from this issue, and it's certainly not separate from this issue. I mean, there are there are drag queens who, who imitate um, Aboriginal uh, women in Australia, for instance. You know, there are uh, drag queens who pretend to be Korean and so on and so on. So there, these, these issues are need to be understood they need to be taken apart and they need to be understood sort of issues of vicious sexism and vicious racism. And we need to get back to some of the understanding we once had as those of us who were involved in social justice movements instead of in, involved in this tremendous diversion. And it is a terrible, terrible diversion from all of the serious issues that we need to be involved with? Why are we going for promoting men's wearing of women's knickers in public places rather than dealing with all these other very serious political issues that face us? Mm. The devolution of language, you hinted to that, and I've seen it particularly around, again, with children. Why can't you call a pedo a pedo anymore? I mean, what's this minor attractive person's rubbish? And that devolution of language is, I think, very pernicious. Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that, as I was saying earlier, the campaigns to normalise gay men's or uh, heterosexual and gay men's sexual perversions has taken on board. They have wanted to change the language that the sexologists can use about them to desexualize the practices. And then they they sanitize those names. I mean, the, in terms of paedophilia, I had a whole chapter on this, as I say, in penal imperialism. And the things that are going on there are quite extraordinary in, in criminology, for instance, in the science of criminology. Um, and there are these writings that I've um, that I have used, which say that um, paedophiles are not a problem. Um, they, they, there's this whole group of people called men called non-touch paedophiles. They would never touch children. They'd like to, but they never, never, never will. But they need to be able to use the dolls. Um, but if you if you create a stigma and you're you're socially disapproving of these men, they'll be forced. They'll feel they have to use children. So you mustn't 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 disapprove of them. If you do, they will sexually abuse children. But everybody should love them. They should be accepted in the community and understood as non-touch paedophiles, minor attractive persons who are a special kind of person. They say it biological like they say that transgenderism is biological, biological, there's nothing biological about it. This is a socially constructed form of abusive sexuality. So yes, it's absolutely fascinating the way in which paedophilia is being normalized right now. I mean, I also write about how back in the 1970s, the paedophile information exchange and gay activist alliance, these were groups of gay men who campaigned to normalize paedophilia. And it was accepted at that time. The uh, Liberty, National Council for Civil Liberties, as it was called then in Britain, had them at their conferences giving speeches. Or the gay magazines all had pieces promoting paedophilia. It was called, you know, loving children and allowing children to love. There was all kinds of language about how wonderful it was. Um, so that it, that was big in the 1970s in the way that transgenderism now. And I see the same trajectory, hopefully. It wasn't as big as transgenderism was, but there was a great deal of acceptance of it. It wasn't until the early 80s that some of these organisations got um, shut down. I'm afraid when you start looking at men's, heterosexual and gay men's, unfortunately, I have to say, forms of sexuality, some of the forms of sexuality, it's a very serious problem. And it's these perversions which, which the campaigners are, are wanting to normalise, legalise, and so on. I'm sorry that some of the things I say are shocking, but I've been, you know, I've been writing about this for so long. I've written books about it. And yes. Honestly, Sheila, don't worry. My show is the one that's become known for all the shocking content. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that. Because, and I think people ought to know because mm. I think otherwise people will go out there thinking that these men suddenly become women in the street one day and poor people, they need to be understood. No, we need to actually understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. I just wanted to look at your autobiography, Trigger Warning, 
why now? Because you're still so active in the space. You're still writing prolifically. You're still working. I just feel your autobiography is a little bit too soon. I think there's still a lot more (laughs) to come. I mean, is Um, there going to be a part two potentially? I have no idea about that, but I thought I'd better get it done now Um, because, you know, the women I know and the women I interviewed were all getting older. We don't know Mm. when anybody's going to, you know, drop off their perch. We we actually don't. So I thought, yes, get it done. And also I needed to get it done because a whole new wave of feminism was developing, lots of young women becoming involved who had absolutely no idea what we did. They had absolutely no idea that in the 70s and 80s in Britain, for instance, we had feminist bookshops in every town, usually run by lesbians. We had lesbian groups in every town. We had black women's groups. We had working class women's groups. We had consciousness raising groups, loads and loads of groups in every single city. We had discos. We had women's centers. There was so much. There was a massive community and we were very, very effective. You know, the anti-pornography group that I was in, we got... Um, sexually violent films, advertisements taken off the underground trains. I mean, to imagine that now, but, but, but we did all of those things and we were remarkably successful and there is no knowledge of it. There's absolutely no knowledge because we got completely buried. We got completely buried from the universities. Women's studies got tossed out. Um, I've just discovered that um, the a library, uh, the council libraries in Calderdale in this country have banned all gender critical books, including uh, trigger warning. So trigger warning has just been put out of the library. It can be found under the counter. But yes, so f- feminism pretty much got pushed out of universities. I mean, in the university I taught in, in gender studies, which you'd think would actually have stuff about lots of stuff about feminism. There was nothing about radical feminism at all. My books were not taught there, absolutely not known, though those who taught it were a few doors down the corridor. And my students would come to me and say, Sheila, this is a bit of a puzzle. It's nothing like I thought it would be. So the feminism was got out of universities. It was got out of pretty much everywhere. And it became sort of, oh, you're an old-fashioned one. Would you bother talking about that again? And I think, I fear... Now, that is one of the reasons why uh, the transvestite campaigns has been as successful as they are. I think that a lot of men in institutions and public places have thought that women are just boring. They've gone on and on long enough and they should have everything they wanted by now. And uh, some have been only too pleased to jump on something which will enable them to put women down and actually have... Know, an argument against women's rights, because otherwise, how could you possibly imagine that all these political parties, Labour parties and the left and so on and institutions, even the health services, how could you imagine that they would take seriously the idea that men can become women and then not allow women to speak about that and discipline women and toss women out if they try to speak about it? I mean, that's extraordinary to imagine. So I have to assume that before all of this happened and transvestite activists were able to take advantage of it, there was a building backlash against women. You know, 50 years, women had, been, had achieved some kind of acceptance as equal human beings, and that annoyed an enormous number of men. I have no doubt it did at all. And so the, if that backlash is what was taken advantage of and why all of this has taken place so fast and in such an extraordinary way. Censorship, I think, has also played a huge part in that because the fact that your books have been removed from libraries is, for me, abhorrent. You know, this is why the station exists, because of the level of censorship that is in our societies now. And these conversations need to be had. And there is an opinion, I think, from those in governance that us as individuals are not capable of making up our own minds which is very, very sad. For the academy, I mean, do you look now at universities, surely you must be getting itchy thinking, we need to take this back. How do we take this back? How do we get the next generation to actually right the wrongs that have gone on in the last 20 years? It's so extraordinary and distressing to me is that, you know, for for decades, we worked in social justice movements to actually make things better. So in my university, for instance, I was involved in a, com- a committee to, to write a little pamphlet on how we shouldn't say chairman, we should cha- cha- chairperson or chairwoman or whatever, and we should change the language that was used so that women could actually be seen as equally human and so on. We 
all, many, many examples of those sorts of things that we did. And now it's all been turned against us in this extraordinary way. And we have become the criminals who do the terrible behavior where once upon a time we were those actually trying to make things better. So, yes, it's, it's an extraordinary situation that we're in here. And it's a particularly a, a extraordinary situation, I think, for any of those who actually were involved in equal opportunities committees or programs or whatever. They're having to deal with this. They're completely silenced. I imagine they're having to leave if they still have any feminist ideas because they could not possibly stay. Well, I mean, I live in a country where our Prime Minister doesn't even know what a woman is, Sheila. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I'm talking to Sheila Jeffries. Where can people find your body of work? So they've heard this today and they've heard about some of the books that we've discussed. They know that potentially they can't pop down to the library to get it. Where can they actually find your body of work and get some more information? I have a website, which is sheila-jeffries.com. All of my papers that are not in books, my academic papers and so on, which are not very academic, they're all very straightforward, are up there. My speeches, videos, all that kind of stuff is there. I would also advise women to go to um, the website of the Women's Declaration International. I would like them to sign the declaration. We've got 36,000 signatures, I think, now. Men and women can sign, and it's very important that they do. Um, in terms of my books, I have written 12 books, and a number of them are available from Spinifex Press, a wonderful still surviving feminist press in Australia. So please go onto the Spinifex Press website where you can get uh, trigger warning and you can get uh, penile imperialism and some of my earlier books, which they have reprinted there. Uh, and yes, of course, uh, do go to your local library and order these books because some of those local libraries will not know who I am. And mm. it might take them a while to find out and realise that they need to censor me and go to your local bookshops and order books. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, I do so appreciate your time because uh, it is getting very late for you. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. I've been talking to Professor Sheila Jeffries. A great, great pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Do not disappear here on Counterculture Stall. More to come, including catching up with Hana Tamaki, as well as the Woke News of the Week. A great delight to talk to you, Marie. Thank you very much. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Reality Check Radio. Radio.